Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is April the 21st, 2021. And uh, the headlines suggest uh, today that the war in the Ukraine continues. Although there's been much press about the United States and Russia and, of course, Ukraine, less so about China. It's rather like Macbeth, I think. Um, the real story is perhaps the story that's not being told, uh, although there are people writing about China. Thomas Friedman, who I think generally gets things wrong, uh, suggests in his own perhaps not particularly funny way, that China and Russia are giving authoritarianism a bad name. I'm not sure if that's true. Uh, certainly um, lots of advice to the Chinese from the Americans about how to behave as a great power. I'm not sure, again, if America is well positioned to give that kind of advice. Peace in the Hill about being a great power. Uh, here's the stance that China should take with Russia. Uh, the Chinese are with the Indians, uh, helping the Russians, according to One Piece. They may even be saving Russia from um, economic collapse. Meanwhile, this very complicated, problematic American-Chinese relationship continues to bubble just beneath the surface. There was a, a headline from a, a former head of a, a state-run Chinese newspaper suggesting that there is, quote-unquote, a high probability of war with the United States. I'm not sure when and how and why, but that war has been something that people have been talking about for a while. We're going to talk about the United States versus China today, quite literally, uh, there's a new book out called The United States versus China, The Quest for Global Economic Leadership. And it's written by my guest today, C. Fred Bergström, who is a longtime analyst, political figure inside and outside uh, Washington, D.C. And he's joining us today from Norfolk, from Virginia. Fred, um, uh, is China Banquo's ghost in this war in Ukraine? Is it really ultimately, historians will tell us, in 25 or 50 years, a war about the transition from a, an American-centric world or perhaps a world, a, a Cold War world, divided between Russia and America to one dominated by Russia and China? No, I don't think so at all. Uh, I don't think Russia is going to dominate the world uh, over any prolonged period of time. But it is true that China is moving up alongside the United States as a long run, pretty much equal power. Uh, China has already achieved rough equivalence with the US in terms of economic power already. Uh, this is the first challenge to American supremacy in the world since we became the top country over a century ago. Uh, so the U.S. is going to have to adjust to living in a world where it is not the dominant country. It's going to have to find ways increasingly to work with China. That sounds like a daunting task right now. Uh, the Ukraine crisis with Russia gets in the way with that. But even there, I think there are some positive signs. And uh, 
and we can talk about those if you want. Well, uh, perhaps, Fred, I didn't express my question clearly. Uh, what I meant, actually, is what you just said, that the, the war in Ukraine is as much about the rise of China, at least implicitly, um, and the irrelevance of Russia in the 21st century. What is China making of this war? What's your sense? Well, I think China is playing a very cautious, straddling position. China's rhetoric, which is despicable, is strongly supporting Russia. But if you ask what has China done in tangible, concrete form to help Russia in this crisis, the answer to my observation is precisely zero. China has done nothing to increase its purchases from Russia, certainly to convey technology or military equipment to Russia. The Chinese seem to be complying with the US and Western sanctions against Russia. So I distinguish between what they say and what they do. What they say is deplorable, but what they have done so far has been of zero consequence for Russia, as far as I can tell. And that indicates, which is my one of my basic beliefs, that China has such an interest in maintaining its participation, its access to the global economic system, that it's not going to risk disrupting it. And it's not going to risk disrupting its own participation in it. So if you watch what they do, I'm modestly encouraged. So coming back to that piece in The Hill about being a great power, here's the stance China should take with Russia. You're suggesting that, for better or worse, China's already behaving like a great power. It knows how to be a great power. It's been a great power in the past. And in a sense, they've been preparing themselves for this moment for centuries, certainly for a couple of hundred years. Yeah, that's the, the big issue, of course, is how we define responsibility of a great power. Uh, we have ideas on that. We built the world economic order after the Second World War. It's been a stunning success for the last 75 years. But now China comes up, achieves rough equivalence of economic power, has gained enormously from that open system. So it simultaneously wants to maintain the system because it gains so much from it, but it also wants to increase its role in the system it wants to change some of the rules of the system, and it wants to get away with cheating on the system. China thinks it's getting the best of both worlds. On the one hand, it has access to this pretty open world of trade and technology. On the other hand, it clearly cheats on the rules and norms of that system when it thinks it can get away, get away with it. And that's a big risk for China. They are now so big that when they cheat substantially, as they do, they trigger a backlash against their own policies. This was the Trump trade war. And more, more broadly, uh, the negative reactions against China around the world. At some point, that's going to jeopardize the open system itself on which they are so dependent. For me, leadership, responsibility uh, on the part of China means they're going to have to recognize that, stop violating the rules and norms of the system, look to play a bigger role, that's fair enough and justified, but not bring a backlash on themselves that will throw out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, um, 
Fred, you are, I think, a founder or certainly been involved for a long time in the Peterson Institute for International, Pol uh, for International Economics. Many people, when they think of you, think that you're a conservative, although I, I'm not so convinced of that, certainly a liberal conservative. But you, you mentioned Donald Trump. You're very different in your take on China from Trump. You don't see the US-China relationship or contest as an an inevitably zero-sum game, do you? That's correct. I think Trump was a disaster on China as on so many things. He attempted a policy of containment to try to suppress China's rise. That's just not feasible. China's too big, it's too dynamic. It can't be suppressed at this point in history. Likewise, no other countries would join the United States in an effort to suppress China because they know that. So Trump wound up violating most of our alliances. The only way we can possibly deal effectively with China is in tandem with our allies. But Trump declared war on our allies at the same time he was declaring war on China. So he isolated the United States, wound up alone, and China demonstrably did not capitulate to US unilateral pressure. The trade war gained nothing. The Chinese were the only country to keep growing right through the pandemic. The Chinese share of world trade increased sharply despite Trump's trade war and a reduction in their trade with the United States. Um, China demonstrated that it cannot be suppressed. It won't be. So an effort to do that is a total failure. By contrast, I think what we have to find, and it's difficult, but we have to find a way that we can cooperate with them at least on the big economic issues, because unless the U.S. and China, the two and only two big economic superpowers, can get together, nothing is going to happen constructively, and the world economy may very well fall into an abyss, fall into a, a, a negative spiral of protectionism and nativism, and that would be a disaster for us as well as for the Chinese and the world more broadly. That Hill piece um, that I referred to earlier um, refers to what they call the Group of Two or G2, which was a concept, they suggest, initially proposed by you-know-who, C. Fred Bergstrom in 2005 to describe the economic relationship between the United States and China. Do we need a G2, Fred? Is that the solution to a lot of this? I actually think a G2 would be an ideal solution. But you have to be careful what you mean by it. I never meant excluding other countries because there are other key countries, Europeans, Japan, others, that will play an important role in the world economy. What I meant by a G2, and still do, is a very informal collaborative uh, arrangement where the only two, the only two big superpowers, the US and China, get together on a continuing basis have open lines of consultation, have all sorts of uh, uh, networking among their key people, and basically consult about the big picture changes that are needed in the world economy. When you face a new financial crisis, how do we get out of it? When the world economy slows, heads toward recession, how do we avoid that? When we see countries headed toward trade protection, how do we avoid that? Only if the U.S. and China get together can those kinds of global economic threats be repelled? Uh, the US and China can veto each other's initiatives. 
The two of them together will soon account for well over half the total world economy. It's just an imperative. I think it's a pragmatic imperative for the U.S. and China to get together on economic issues. Now, I'm the first to say we're going to have continued disagreements between the U.S. and China on security issues, on values issues, human rights, others. So we have to find a way to basically decouple the economic topics from the other topics in the overall U.S.-China relationship in order to permit pragmatic cooperation and, uh, and uh, consultation and uh, working together in those economic uh, dimensions. It's nice to know, Fred, there are still some sane conservatives around. Um, I thought of you uh, earlier in the week. I interviewed Charles Koopchan. I'm not sure if you know Charles. Uh, he's a Council for Relations guy. He was talking to me about the failure of his position in the Clinton administration to argue against Ukrainian membership of, of, uh, of NATO and the eastward expansion of NATO. And it reminded me of the introduction to your book. Um, you were involved also with the Clinton White House. Uh, you were a top uh, economic advisor. Uh, and I was struck by the fact that the introduction to your new book, The United States versus China, talks about advice you gave Clinton. Um, perhaps you might remind our viewers of that advice and, 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 and broadly summarize the success or failure of U.S. policy in the 30 or 40 years since uh, Clinton ran the show. Yeah, that was about 30 years ago, uh, before, well before China had become the uh, global economic superpower that it is today. But everybody was already cognizant, and certainly Clinton was, of the stakes in engaging China more in the world economy. The issue at the time, and this was before China had joined the World Trade Organization, the issue was whether to promote free and open trade in the Asia-Pacific region, not just between the U.S. and China, but among all the countries in the region. And I advocated that. Clinton adopted that strategy. And in fact, the Asia-Pacific countries, with their series of annual summits that they've been holding since then, have been promoting that. And a lot of it is now happening without the United States, incidentally, because of Trump. But the question that Clinton raised already 30 years ago was, well, suppose we open up all this stuff for China and give them access to our market, the world markets, help them in their economic development strategy, which turns out to be the most successful in human history. What if we give them all that? And then, as Clinton put it, when they no longer need us, they say bye-bye. Well, that's the question that every American president, both before Clinton, going back to Nixon, and since then, have raised. And the conclusion up until very recently was a policy that everybody calls engagement. You try to work closely with China in a way that I'm describing, but not just in economics, across the board. And the view was that over time, economic liberalization would beget political liberalization, and that China would move toward a world of values, even uh, uh, modest democratic principles, like those that we espouse and hold dear. Well, it turned out that was not going to happen. Uh, China's economy has boomed, become, as I say, an equal superpower to our own, but they have not liberalized politically. Indeed, for the last decade or so, they've been moving in the other direction. 
toward a more repressive authoritarian society. So now some people are saying, well, that whole policy was a failure. Uh, that whole engagement strategy was naive. It was misplaced. We simply helped our future enemy get stronger. Uh, and now they're showing us that, uh, uh, that they are the enemy. They are the adversary. And we've got to reverse our policy and, uh, and uh, treat them as an enemy and try to suppress them. As I already said, that won't work. The question now is whether we, like China, can pursue a two-track policy whether we can continue to oppose them on security and values and human rights issues, other political issues, while still working pragmatically with them on economic issues, where they and we have common interests in a successful, functioning, stable, and prosperous world economy. That's a difficult balancing act. The Chinese have been pulling it off internally with economic liberalization and political repression, I'm hoping we can do it internationally, and that's really the thrust of what I'm arguing and advocating in my new book. And that new book is The United States versus China, The Quest for Global Economic Leadership by C. Fred Bergsten. Um, Fred, we're going to take a, a, a short break now, and afterwards I want to come back and I want to talk about two traps, two very intriguing traps you bring up in the book, uh, the Thucydides trap and the Kindleberger trap, very uh, very intriguing traps that America needs to avoid in this global golf game against the Russians. Um, so we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back with C. Fred Bergsten, the author of The United States versus China. Don't go anywhere, anyone. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back with C. Fred Bergson, the author of The United States versus China, uh, an intriguing new book about this uh, 
competition between the United States and China to run and manage the global economic uh, system in the early 21st century. Uh, Fred, uh, in your book, you introduce uh, an intriguing concept, which you call the Thucydides trap, based on the Athenian historian and general. What is the Thucydides trap, and what do the Americans need to avoid in this? Well, the Thucydides trap is simply a way to describe the conflict between an incumbent global power like the United States is now and a rising new power like China is now. The trap posits that there will inevitably be conflict between the incumbent and the rising power. The incumbent tries to hold on to his position even when his ability to do so uh, is waning. The rising power, understandably, wants a bigger role it wants to uh, shoulder its way into the hierarchy uh, at the top of the system. Uh, some historians have looked at the uh, trap over time. Uh, they've looked at 16 cases where the conflict uh, emerged between rising and incumbent power and concluded that in 12 of those 16 cases, the result was war. Now, there are many people that oppose that analysis as well, but it points to an inherent conflict and we see it right now. The US is trying to cling to its traditional leadership role. China is trying to elbow its way in, though without disrupting or destroying the system uh, that the US has created because the Chinese themselves benefit a lot from it. My point is that the US has to recognize that China has now achieved roughly equivalent economic clout to the United States itself. We therefore have to increasingly share power and leadership with them. The issue is not to try to suppress them and block them and keep them from getting there. They're already there in most respects, but to figure out ways to work with them to the greater good of both countries and the world as a whole. I think that's doable. I think the Chinese have an interest in doing it as much as we do. But that's a real trick for statesmanship. It means the U.S. has to adopt a new mindset, a willingness to share power, not to try to dominate, uh, to try to do so with an Asian power, which is not democratic, which is not basically a market economy. So it's a different animal in terms of an economic superpower than we're even ever used to in the past. So it's a huge challenge, but I think it's probably the big challenge for U.S. foreign policy and national security for the next several decades. And what I try to do in my book is lay out uh, a blueprint both for understanding the problem and for how to begin dealing with it. And on top of the Thucydides trap, Fred, you also have another trap, the Kindleberger <laughs> trap, named after a man called Charles Paul Kindleberger, an American economic historian. Um, it's called, as I said, the Kindleberger Trap. Joe Nye wrote a piece about it in 2017. Um, and you're not alone uh, in, in writing about this Kindleberger Trap for the China and the United States. What is the Kindleberger Trap and how does it exist alongside the Thucydides Trap? Yeah, Kindleberger was actually a professor of mine in graduate school. So I knew him well and respected him deeply. He posited that the Great Depression in the 1930s was caused by 
an economic equivalent of the Thucydides trap. Um, Great Britain had been the traditional leader of the world economy for the 19th century and into the 20th century, but had lost a great deal of its economic uh, ability. Uh, world War I had decimated it, uh, and the British no longer had the capacity to lead the world, avoid protectionism, avoid a freezing up of capital flows, etc. cetera. Uh, the rising power at that time was the United States. This is the 1930s, but the United States was not yet willing to take on a leadership role. In fact, it was very protectionist, very uh, isolationist, and made things worse. So Kendall Berger's thesis was that the failure of economic leadership, the collapse of the traditional leader, and the unwillingness of the new power to take leadership is what converted the national recessions of the 1930s into the Great Depression. Because what happened was that trade froze up, uh, the U.S. passed the Smoot-Hawley tariff, uh, protectionism rose around the world, trade was literally cut in half in two years, nobody was providing international financial flows uh, to avoid debt crises, defaults, and the like. And the Kindleberger trap is the risk that, again, with a, an incumbent power, now the U.S., and a rising power, now China, we could fall into a situation where there was no leadership uh, to keep the world economic order on an open and cooperative tack, and thereby the world could again fall into a calamity like the 1930s. So the two traps work together. It's the rising power and the incumbent power, but it's translated into the economic sphere where a failure of both to provide the kind of leadership that's needed to keep an open economic system going uh, produces global economic calamity. Uh, both are possible. I don't predict they'll happen, but there's certainly a risk they can happen unless, and that's the thrust of my book, we find a constructive way to deal with the new balance of economic power, the relative uh, relationship between China and the United States, and therefore evolve into a new status of cooperative leadership, call it a G2, uh, in which we have the two big powers working together collaboratively. Fred, at what point could we reach, uh, shall we say, a, a red line on the moral front in terms of working together with the Chinese? We've done a lot of shows about the morally very troubling nature of the Chinese regime. We did one with Kai Strittmatter, a German uh, journalist, a couple of years ago about the Orwellian nature of the Chinese state. We've done it with younger journalists like Joanna Xu on the human cost of uh, China's growth, uh, her book, China Unbound, A New World Disorder, very much in contrast with your book. Another young uh, journalist, Amelia Pang, came on the show talking about Made in China, the slave, the slave labor nature of the Chinese economy. At what point do we need to say, we, and I use that term very liberally, we need to say enough is enough. It's all very well protecting your liberal global economic system, but we're not willing to work with a power that 
in moral terms, is just as dark and troubling as Stalin's Russia or Mao's China. Well, I agree that that's the most difficult part of the whole equation, uh, that here you do have, for the first time in history, a global economic superpower whose political and values uh, approaches are anathema to us. I yield to no one in my distaste for the Chinese behavior, the ones you mentioned, Hong Kong, the Uyghurs, uh, the constant threats to Taiwan, uh, all that is deplorable. I couldn't agree more. I in no way would seek to whitewash China's behavior. At the same time, they're there. They are, as I've said now several times, uh, a global economic superpower, roughly equivalent to our own, growing two to three times as fast as we are. So their equivalence to us, indeed, their increasing lead over us in terms of economic size, technology, all sorts of variables are going to keep increasing. And if we stick our head in the sands to that and say we simply can't deal with these people because they're terrible people, uh, we're going to risk some very bad outcomes of the type that I have described. So I am suggesting what I call in my book a decoupling between the different sets of issues. Continue, from a U.S. standpoint, continue to oppose them strongly, severely, uh, consistently on the human rights issues and some of the security issues. We haven't even talked about the South China Sea and all that. Right, I did want to talk about that, actually. Uh, uh, Daniel Jurgen was on the show recently, the very distinguished energy analyst. You probably know him. He's based in D.C., talking about the Chi South China Sea as enormously dangerous. Yeah, so all, on all those issues, security and values issues, uh, I have no doubt we will continue to have very sharp disagreements with China and will oppose them sharply. But at the same time, I think there is this pragmatic need in the interests of our own country, but the world as a whole, to recognize that China has ascended to a power uh, on the economic front that simply has to be recognized and dealt with. Uh, we could try to contain them, but it won't work. We could let the world dissolve into blocks. We could uh, say, okay, we won't deal with China economically, but we know that the rest of Asia and even lots of other parts of the world wouldn't buy that and would continue to work with China. So you could develop an economic Cold War, very much like the traditional uh, military Cold War that we had with the Soviet Union. Uh, the difference, of course, is that the Soviet Union, like Russia today, is not really a big factor in the world economy. Uh, so we can sanction them, we can uh, oppose them across the board without economic costs. But you cannot do that with China, given the objective facts of where it stands in the world economy. Uh, it's not just a matter of making a few bucks or, uh, or maintaining our supply chain uh, with China. It's much broader than that. It's that if we want to have a continued global economic order that has basically open markets, basically open capital flows, cooperative management to avoid crises, uh, we have to do it with China because China has the clout uh, to veto anything we would try to do independently and on our own. We could try to game it through, hope it all worked, 
hope that a leaderless world economy would function successfully, but it's a huge gamble. The Kindleberger trap, the 1930s, showed it could lead to disaster, and I'm afraid that uh, we should not risk it. How much of a debate is going on about all this, uh, Fred, in D.C.? You're a perennial D.C. insider. Uh, your book, I guess, is a, a dovish approach to China. Um, not completely dovish, but mostly dovish. There are other books coming out, and I'm going to have Aaron Friedberg, for example, on the show, Getting China Wrong, that take a very different line. Uh, are there furious debates going on in the think tanks, in the corridors of power in Washington, D.C., about American policy in China? Well, there are furious debates, but I would have to say that there's a growing consensus to be hawkish, take the tough line. Uh, do what you were saying a few minutes ago, uh, that the Chinese are simply uh, too authoritarian, uh, too undemocratic, uh, too uh, violating of civil of human rights uh, around the world, that we just can't deal with them. We have to view them as the enemy, and we should therefore uh, take adversarial steps. Uh, I would say there is increasing agreement in Washington that that's the correct mindset. And it's one of the few issues on which there's bipartisan political agreement, that China is a huge challenge for the United States and that we have to respond to it uh, appropriately. However, there is very big disagreement on how to respond. Um, everybody agrees it's the big challenge, but there's very little consensus on how that response should be fashioned. If Trump tried a trade war, uh, that was demonstrably ineffective. It did nothing to improve China's behavior. It simply cost everybody, uh, including our relationship with our allies. He and wouldn't acknowledge that, though, and I'm guessing he won't acknowledge it if he runs for president again. He will claim that his China policy was successful and he will denigrate Bi Biden's policy. And that would then push us even deeper into the hole or the holes that I'm suggesting we could get into. Uh, Biden has... Um, uh, reversed some of Trump's policy, but mainly toward our allies. Trump declared war on our allies as well as our adversaries. Uh, Biden has reversed that, is working closely with our allies, as witnessed uh, now uh, with respect to Ukraine. But Biden has not changed the China policy. Uh, the trade war is still there. Uh, sharp words are going back and forth on everything, including China's rhetoric about Ukraine. So uh, there really has been no change yet uh, in the Biden administration in terms of these economic relationships with China. And in my view, that means things continue to spiral downward. The risk of a new Cold War, uh, certainly an economic Cold War, uh, continues to grow. The risks of a disruption to the whole global economic order get bigger and bigger and the kinds of uh, traps that we talked about before uh, loom ever larger. Fred, do we need more political contrarians? One person who has been quite open about the need to work closely with China is the former California governor, Jerry Brown, who certainly uh, is, is no conformist when it comes to politics. Do we need younger figures, um, perhaps particularly within both parties who are who are more long-sighted, more interested in 
in uh, in 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 long term uh, political strategies than simply bashing the Chinese. Yeah, I think that's the key point: is to take a long term strategic view rather than a short term transactional view. Uh, anybody who takes a long term view is bound to conclude that China will remain a great power, an economic superpower for the indefinite future. Uh, in fact, a growing power with respect, relative to the United States and even relative to the United States and our allies. So if you take that view, I think you're almost driven to the conclusion I reach that we have to be looking for ways to cooperate at least on these economic issues. The reason I, I knew in writing this book that I was fighting an uphill battle, uh, pushing against the consensus we talked about a few minutes ago, where there's widespread agreement that China is the new adversary and we have to take them on in a very uh, hawkish and uh, an aggressive way. Uh, incidentally, in my book, I call for everything to be done on a totally conditional basis that China would have to reciprocate. Uh, I call my preferred policy uh, conditional competitive cooperation. It'd have to be conditional. We wouldn't just capitulate to Chinese desires and interests. We would insist that they did their part of a new leadership uh, uh, system. Um, so I'm not dovish in the traditional sense. It's uh, often accused of accommodating or capitulating to Chinese interests. Far from it. But the reason I was willing to put forward this argument realizing that it was an uphill battle right now, is that I do believe that anybody who looks at this over the medium term or certainly the long term is driven to the conclusion that we're going to have to live with a powerful China, that we can do it in the economic sphere more successfully than in these other spheres, and therefore a decoupling of the different types of policy is the right way to go. Some people talk about decoupling the countries decouple the U.S. from China broadly. That's part of a containment strategy. Uh, decouple across the board in a national sense. I reject that in favor of what I call functional decoupling. You break off the economic issues, hold your nose to be sure in some respects, uh, and continue to have adversarial relations on other topics, but work together on economics. Now, is that doable? Will the Chinese play in that way? Uh, I think they will because they... Well, that's an interesting question, Fred. Um, is there a need for there to be see Fred Bergstens in Beijing as well? We've done a number of shows with China and Singapore-based analysts, for example, Kishore uh, Mabubani. I'm sure you're familiar with his work. There tends to be an element of crowing, perhaps, amongst some pro-Chinese analysts on this changing balance of power. Do guys like you need help in Beijing? Yes. Uh, there certainly are people in Beijing uh, and Shanghai and elsewhere throughout China who take views roughly similar to my own. Um, remember, the economic reformers uh, carried the day in China for about 40 years uh, from the reforms in late 1970s uh, up until, say, 10 to 15 years ago, uh, the economy was liberalizing, it was reforming, and even those who were not great marketeers 
were committed to Chinese integration into the world economy. Remember that a fundamental element of the Chinese economic miracle was its integration into the world economic system. And the Chinese know that, and they continue to value it. The question is whether having achieved now this economic power and benefit from the system, will they step up to the responsibilities that are inherent with a superpower to take a responsible role for leadership in the system? That is the huge question. There are certainly people within China, certainly people in the rest of Asia, that believe China should and will do so. And the question is getting to the political leadership that will see it as a priority in China and as a priority here in the United States. So Fred, I hope uh, hope the book's being distributed or certainly read in China. Uh, your new book, The United States versus China, The Quest for Global Economic Leadership. It's a really important book, a, a fundamentally important subject. It's not quite as sexy as American policy in Ukraine or the Middle East, but it's much more important ultimately. Congratulations on the new book. What else should people be reading, Fred, in these uncertain times in April 2022, in, in addition to your uh, United States versus China? Well, you mentioned the Aaron Friedberg book, uh, uh, Getting China Wrong. Uh, I, think, I think it uh, presents the other side of the case in a fair and objective way. Uh, Martin Wolf in the Financial Times. Yeah, I, I read Martin. Martin's been on the the show, and actually, Martin uh, compared and contrasted your. Yeah, he reviewed my book and, and Friedberg's together. Uh, he preferred mine, but said he was afraid Friedberg's might. Well, Martin better. is like you. He is a, a the ultimate liberal free trader, so that's not surprising. Yeah, we'll have to get Fred, you and uh, and Friedberg on the show. It'll be an interesting conversation. Um, Finally, uh, Fred Bergstein, uh, and it's very generous of you, and I think very much in the keeping of the spirit of your book, to suggest that people read an alternative to your view of the world. That's very unusual, and I think it reflects very well on you. Uh, who's running the world, see Fred Bergstein, in, in April 2022? Who's in charge these days, Fred? Well, I don't think anybody's really in charge, but the closest, at least on the economic side, is the Federal Reserve. Uh, the Fed, I think, sets world interest rates. It sets global thinking about where the world economy is going. Uh, it tries to steer that economy. It is the lender of last resort when crises hit, as they did with the early days of the pandemic, as well as the global financial crisis uh, uh, a decade or so ago. Uh, so to the extent there's anybody running the world economy, and I'll put it in those terms, uh, I think it's the Federal Reserve, and uh, they, uh, they're the big power, and we have to always watch them closely, uh, try to advise them uh, uh, on getting, the, uh, getting their uh, mandate right, and if so, uh, we'll all be a lot better off.